was good to hear that theme music again. I'm Nick Bryant, and so much has happened since we last released an episode of Journo. More journalists risking and losing their lives to report on the front lines of war and human tragedy in Gaza and elsewhere around the world. The coverage of the Voice to Parliament referendum in Australia, and of course the media baron Rupert Murdoch stepping down from the top job at Fox and News Corp, effectively handing over control to his son, Lachlan Murdoch, a real-life succession. One news editor who's been at the heart of these and many of the biggest stories in recent history is Alan Rusbridger. As editor-in-chief for The Guardian globally, he was at the helm in 2010 when the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange came to the paper to collaborate on releasing a cache of confidential military logs belonging to the United States. The size and accuracy of the leaked documents made this partnership one of the greatest journalistic scoops of the last few decades. But this partnership was also unprecedented. One of the oldest newspapers in the world teaming up with a highly controversial online outfit. And it wasn't without drama. Julian was everything. He was a, well, he he wasn't the source. Chelsea Manning was the source. But he brought the story in. But he also wanted to be the publisher. He wanted to be the editor. He wanted to be the impresario that was the activist, the celebrity. The he was. He was. He had fingers, and and every time you met him, he had a, a different guise. And it's completely understandable why he did that. And partly it was a question of survival. But he definitely wanted to be in on the selection of the stories and the presentation of the stories, which in in a way helped him because it it meant that he could call himself a journalist. But it also, I think, made the target on his back bigger. These days, Anna Rusbridge is the editor of the UK's Prospect magazine. He recently sat down for a wide-ranging interview with the managing editor of Journo, Kelly Reardon. Kelly started by asking Alan to take us into the basement of the Guardian newspaper on a day in 2013. Officials from GCHQ, the UK's intelligence and security agency, had asked newspaper staff to destroy hardware containing key pieces of information leaked by the whistleblower Edward Snowden about the National Security Agency in the United States. There was something optical about the state coming into a a news organisation and destroying material. We felt more comfortable doing it ourselves. And so they stood over my colleagues pointing at various bits of a, you know, an Apple Mac or whatever the machine was. And it, it's obviously harder to destroy a computer than you might think. You, know, you can't just bash it with a hammer or shove glue in the, uh, in the, in the drives. Uh, so there, there were particular bits of chip and motherboard that had to be comprehensively ground to dust. Did you ever consider refusing their request to hand over the information? Well, I did ask what would happen if we didn't comply with this. And it was clear to me that one of two things would happen. We would either have the police come around and confiscate the stuff and, and physically shut down uh, the thing that we were reporting on, or they would get an injunction. I, th- I think it would probably be in that, the latter. So they would have got, got an injunction. They would have said, you cannot publish anything. And the Washington Post was also in possession of material, and it felt to me, why argue and have a sort of multi-million pound legal battle during which we wouldn't be able to publish anything 
if we could simply go to New York and publish it from there. But that did involve having us to destroy the machines. So let's go back a step in your editorship. When was the first time you had any contact with Edward Snowden and how did that come about? We had started a, an American edition and had decided that we would concentrate on security as one of the things that we wanted to report on and hired a man called Glenn Greenwald, who lived in uh, Brazil, oddly enough, but was um, a, a prodigious blogger about security matters. So we hired him. He, he brought with him an audience of about a million. He had a very huge uh, devoted following. And it turned out that one of those readers was a man called Edward Snowden, who then got in touch with him. He, he had something to, <laughs> something to get off his chest, um, something quite big. And uh, he trusted Glenn Greenwald. And after some misbits of communication, because it was all a bit cloak and dagger at that point, the two um, got together and the rest, as they say, is history. When reporters are working on highly contentious national security style stories, you know, dangerous secret information that has monumental consequences, how much do those reporters share with you as the editor? Are you well across all of that at the time? Well, there were two phases to the to the story. One was Glenn and Snowden in a hotel room in Hong Kong. I felt uneasy about that because I'd never met Glenn Greenwald. And although he was clearly a very popular blogger, I thought I needed somebody from the Guardian staff in the room. And so sent a reporter called Ewan McCaskill to, to, to as it were, be, be in the room with him and Snowden and Laura Poitras, who was a filmmaker. So I, I needed that kind of reassurance so that we had a sort of direct editorial line back to me about anything that they were discovering. The second phase was once they had left um, Hong Kong and, and Snowden eventually ended up, ended up in Moscow, as we know, but what he had given us was many hundreds of thousands of documents. Now, again, as editor, I couldn't be across all those, but I was very, very closely in touch with a team of about six to eight people who were plowing their way through those documents. And then every time we felt we were nearing publishing, I was then one of the link people with whoever it was, the NSA, GCHQ, MI6, whoever the document referred to. I understand that at the time there were different moments when Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald, the, the two journalists working on the story, who, you know, are essentially independent journalists in many ways, sort of impatient with the more traditional publishing methods, wanted to go elsewhere with the story. Did you ever worry that you were going to lose it? It was one of the complications. So, I mean, when I look back on it now, the, the, the time frame was immensely compressed. So Snowden was in the hotel room. I think he thought he had hours, perhaps rather than days, before they noticed that he'd gone missing and they tracked him down. There was always the fear of the knock on the door and just losing everything. So he was in a hurry to get some stories out because that was his best defence. And uh, I suppose our instincts were to slow things down. There's a wonderful bit of film where... where Ewan's just arrived in Hong Kong. He's got his notebook out. 
and and Snowden is talking very excitedly about stuff. And Ewan says, "Can I just stop you there?" He said in his Scottish accent, which I won't attempt to. Um, he said, um, "Who are you?" <laughs> he said, "My name was Snowden." That's S N O W D E N. So, like Ewan was, let's not take this to you know. I need to find, know who you claim to be. I need to know who you actually are. I need evidence. I need proof. I need to know that these documents. So, all the, those are the checks that we wanted to go through against Snowden and Glenn, who were uh, you know. Let's just get. We, if you if you're not going to publish, because you're probably too chicken, because you're mainstream media. We don't need you any longer. We can publish on my website. And can you take me inside your thought processes as the editor at that moment? Because I mean, ultimately, high—I can't think of many more high-stake sort of stories. But your editorship perhaps is on the line if you get this wrong. Uh, how much were you worried about the calls that you were making? Uh, it was easily the most complicated and fraught story I, I was involved in in twenty years as an editor. It wasn't just my editorship; it was my freedom. You know, we were dealing with official secrecy laws in the U.S. and the U.K., um, and it was pretty clear we were near the edge, if not over the edge, of those. There was the question of damage, uh, unintentional damage, um, that you could cause by publishing the wrong kind of information. I, I use in inverted commas. There was the the security of the documents. So there were ethically, legally, morally, technically, it was complex on every every possible level. Complicated by the fact that we were working across three different time zones. Janine Gibson in in New York was editing a lot of this for a while. The, the key players were there, were in Hong Kong. I was in London. We knew that. The Washington Post also had the material could publish at any time, so that was a time pressure. Uh, and we knew that once the uh, authorities, that's the American and British authorities mainly, once they got to know about this, they would be around knocking on the door and trying to put pressure on us not to publish. So it was, it was like a sort of game of five-dimensional chess. Do you think you were more? Um... <laughs> More concerned about the U.S. government, the British government, Snowden, your wife. I mean, the number of people to juggle in this mix. What what was the biggest fear at that moment? Well, you do get um, heightened paranoia in such circumstances, and we had been told that we had to create a room inside the Guardian when when the material came back from Hong Kong. That had no electrical equipment in it, so we went and bought computers that had never been connected to the internet, printers that had never been connected to the internet. All the phones were taken out of the room, um, and in my own office, I unplugged everything, including televisions, um, fridges. <laughs> At one point, the cabinet secretary. Pointed out through my window to a block of flats across the water, next door to a canal, and he said, "You realise the Chinese will be in there, and they'll have." I had a glass of water in front of me. He said, "They'll have a, a, a laser on that 
tumbler and they'll have turned it into a microphone. They can listen to what we're saying now. Whether that was true or not, it gave you um, pause for thought. So, you know, the curtains came down immediately. And then when I got home, I did the same. I unplugged everything. If I wanted to talk to my wife, we went out into the woods and, and did all the things that spies are supposed to do. The story finally breaks in June 2013. What was the initial reaction both here and in the US? Well, I had flown to New York by the time we published our first story. And I will always remember pressing the button uh, to publish. And then there was a, a wait uh, of about half an hour before the screens all exploded. It was a Sunday afternoon, so the, the, the networks weren't really geared up for breaking news. And then from that point, for about the next three weeks, it was the only story in town. And morning, noon and night, the American networks were all on this all the time. I think Edward Snowden said at the time he was trying to demonstrate that we're really on the road to total surveillance. And that's in 2013 and already... So much has happened since then. Do you think he was right? I think he was right. And I, I think everything that's happened since has confirmed the fears he had. I mean, I, the, the, there's no doubt, I, I think, the, the, the situation he was describing was as he described it. Um, and, you know, subsequently there have been a lot of court cases and challenges over the legality of, of what various agencies were doing. And quite a lot of them have been successful. And I've met spooks since who say, you know, we were sailing close to the wind. You know, we had very rapidly developed from a world of copper wires to uh, the, the, the ability to, to keep virtually everybody on the planet under surveillance. And we hadn't hung around waiting to get complete sanction for all of that. We just, we got away with it, to be honest. But the, the second half of that was also quite interesting, that actually when the British state, I think the Australian state, and to some extent the American state, the governments all then rushed to pass laws to make sure that what they were doing was put on a legal footing. Uh, and by and large, they got what they wanted. So Snowden's point, which I think was a valid one, was really about the fact that th this was all being done without anybody's consent. And since then, that's been remedied. I don't know if you can answer this question truthfully or not today, but do you have any contact with Edward Snowden these days? I've been to see him three times in Moscow. I haven't been in contact with him for two or three years. Will he ever be able to leave Moscow? My instinct is that um, it probably not. I mean, I, I think the passage of time may may help him. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, there will be a democratic president. It's probably going to be a democratic president who would say, look, enough is enough. But I think the sticking point for Snowden is that he would come back and stand trial if he was allowed to mount a defense. But under the, um, the Espionage Act, there is no defense. So it's, it's, it's a slam dunk certainty that he would go to jail for, for a long time. Uh, and from his point of view, why would he do that? You know, he's, got, he's now got kids, his, his wife is there. Why would he sacrifice all that for the certainty of going to jail? 
He ultimately, though, has made an incredible sacrifice. He can never live in his home country again. His, his freedom is ultimately curtailed in one way or another for the rest of his life. Does he have regret about what he's done? Is he happy that he's done it? Has he reconciled it some a decade on? He, he says not. So, as I say, I haven't seen him for two or three years, but when I last saw him, he was at peace with what he had done and thought it was something that he had to do and had, he had no regrets. Um, you know, whether, whether in the middle of the night when he thinks about the rest of his life in, in Russia, uh, I mean, I, I think it would only be human to have mixed emotions about it, but I, I think intellectually he thinks he did the right thing. Before Edward Snowden, of course, there was an Australian called Julian Assange who reached out to you with a scoop. What were your first impressions of Assange? Well, I first dealt with him without having met him when he was based in Kenya. Um, and he, he just emailed me with, with um, a story about corruption in Kenya. And uh, it was a good story. Um, he had the documents. We used it and we stayed in touch. I sort of vaguely followed his progression but it, it was when my colleague Nick Davis came into my office one day and said, there is this guy, you've written about him on page three, but you completely missed the story. He has got a, a backpack full of <laughs> secrets, American defense secrets, and he's on the run. Should, should I go and find him and sort of bring him in? So um, he brought him in. I met him a few times and we worked together to begin with, quite closely, and then things became more complicated. There were, of course, multiple leads from WikiLeaks across the next couple of years, but everything changes, of course, in 2010 when WikiLeaks themselves publish a video of US air crew shooting down Iraqi civilians, I think a couple of Reuters journalists as well. What was going through your mind when you first saw that WikiLeaks had published that? I think they did it with the, the New Yorker. So, but, but nevertheless, this was clearly a, a global story of huge significance. And I think it was a moment where a lot, of, a lot of people in the news industry sort of sat up a bit like Bellingcat today, you know, this sort of, you know, operation that begins in a garage, as it were, or a bedroom, and then suddenly is, is sort of, you know, world-beating expert on intelligence and defence. So people at that point sat up and thought, okay, this is interesting. This is an operation that seems to be able to get at highly secret material that we ourselves would die for. Who is this person and how, how, how are they doing it? The relationship between The Guardian and Julian Assange wasn't smooth sailing, though. How, how did it look different to the Edward Snowden relationship? They're very different men. Snowden is highly intellectual. He had come out of the, the, the belly of the intelligence world. And so he wasn't a public figure in, in any sense, didn't particularly want to be. He definitely didn't want to be a publisher. He just handed over the material to journalists and said, that's it, this is my involvement, the story ends here. Do what you want. He's a source. He's a source, yeah. So Julian was everything. He was a, well, he, was, he wasn't the source. Chelsea Manning was the source. But he brought the story in. 
but he also wanted to be the publisher. He wanted to be the editor. He wanted to be the impresario that was the activist, the celebrity. The activist. He was. He was. He had fingers, and and every time you met him, he had a, a different guise. And it's completely understandable why he did that. And partly it was a question of survival. But he definitely wanted to be in on the selection of the stories and the presentation of the stories, which in in a way helped him because it it meant that he could call himself a journalist. But it also, I think, made the target on his back bigger. There was a controversial moment at the Australian Walkley Awards, which is the the prize for journalism in Australia, where he was named essentially Journalist of the Year. And the room was very divided. I was in the room and it really would have been 50% of people who saw him as a journalist and 50% of the room who absolutely didn't. Do you think he's a journalist? Well, it's one of the things he is, (laughs) This is why the, it's such a difficult conversation because, yes, he does things that are journalistic that you and I would do and, and many other people would recognise as journalism, but he also does things that are not journalistic. So if you want to be purist about it, you can say, well, I can't recognise him as a journalist because he does all these other things and, and that's not what we do. But, uh, you know, in 2023, we're getting used to the thought that it's very, very difficult to define what a journalist is. There are, there are people doing brilliant journalism who are not journalists. You know, lots of us people we decried as bloggers, you know, he's just a blogger, are highly expert in their field. Betting cat were just bloggers, but they do things that are journalistic. That woman, I think, called Darnella Frazier, who was an 18-year-old girl who held her iPhone up and filmed for nine minutes, the death of George Floyd. She was acknowledged by the Pulitzer Committee because she did, she bore witness. She reported on something that was probably the most important story of that year. So putting people into neat boxes of who's a journalist and who isn't is probably ultimately, well, it's, I'm not saying it's a fruitless thing to do, but it's, it's a very complicated thing to do. Is part of that discussion, though, around, you know, he's not redacting information most of the time. He, In fact, I think he was, when he was working with you to publish stuff, he was quite hostile towards you if you wanted mm. to redact certain things or verify certain things. He, he wants to put things out there sort of without consequence, I guess. Is that one of the key differences as to why some people say he's not a journalist? There was a, a disagreement between us because we had spent months meticulously redacting things, talking to the, the uh, governments if, if, uh, you know, on areas where we, we didn't want inadvertently to, to cause danger. And then suddenly, and this, the story gets very tangled at this point because there's blame thrown on both sides, but for whatever reason, he decides that he wants then to publish the whole lot unredacted. And we'll say that is a wrong thing to do because that's not journalism. You're not picking the significant bits out and and, and operating with great care. You're you're dumping it. So that that's one one thing that makes some journalists uneasy. And the other is his behaviour in 2016 when uh, he got a lot of material may have come from the Russians. We don't know. 
about the Hillary Clinton operation and, and the DNC emails and so on and so forth, just right at the sort of cusp of the uh, election with, with Donald Trump. And a lot of people will never forgive him for that. You know, he would say, I'm doing just what journalists do. That this was, if this wasn't a story, then why did the New York Times keep reporting it? You know, uh, it, it was a story. he would say, without fear or favor. Without That's... fear or favor, exactly. People who are suspicious of him say, yeah, but, you know, this stuff came from the Russians. This was election interference. And they were just laundering this stuff through you. That's not journalism. So some people who would be his natural defenders in now, when he's in need of as much support as he can get, hold back because they say in the, they, they were dismayed by what he did in 2016. I mean, my, my view is he's not being prosecuted for what he did in 2016. He's being prosecuted for... Uh, for the first, um, the diplomatic cables and the uh, Iraq cables, and I think we should defend him for that. I was going to ask, you know, he has obviously been very unwell. He's been imprisoned for a long time, first in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and, and now in prison in London, and now under threat of extradition to the United States, which the UK has agreed to and Assange's team has appealed, and a rather large group of Australian MPs, a cross-party group, which is quite unusual, and I think there's about 60 of them have petitioned to have him released. Do you think he should be released now? Yes. I can't see any purpose that's now being served. He's been in a form of confinement, some of it self-imposed, and some of it in maximum security prisons. I can't see what purpose is now being served by locking him up. There, There are people who have done much more serious crimes of violence who would have been released by now. And the, the, the main thing that really aggravates me is this question of extraterritoriality. So uh, Julian is an Australian citizen working in London, and he has, it's claimed, broken American rules around national security. Turn that around, imagine it was an American citizen working in, a journalist working in London who had written about India's nuclear program or Pakistan's nuclear program, i.e. broken domestic laws about secrecy. Can you imagine the, the Americans would ever voluntarily relinquish and hand over a journalist to India or Pakistan because they had broken domestic laws? It just would never happen. You became the editor of The Guardian in 1995, which was really only a few years after the invention of the World Wide Web. I don't think even Google was on the scene at the time. What was your experience of the internet and why did you drive this transformation or sort of push into the digital age? In 1995, when I took over, there was, I think, one computer in the building that was uh, connected to the outside world. Um, <laughs> we were doing photo composition and we could communicate with each other, but the thought of using these machines to talk to somebody outside the building was a strange one. I had flown to America in 1994 to see the New York Times and the, uh, a paper in San Francisco and um, what a, a newspaper chain was looking at in Boulder, Colorado, of all places. 
And the moment I saw what they were capable of doing, even though, of course, it was tremendously slow and primitive, I thought there's no question that this is going to destroy the, the physical newspaper. And then if it's going to take five years, 10 years, 30 years, but we had to move. And so when I became editor in 1995, I knew that my editorship would be defined by how successfully we transitioned. I hope this is not too bold, but, you know, you're you're an Oxbridge graduate. You're, you're not a sneaker-wearing Silicon Valley tech dude. There would have been other editors at the time who wouldn't have necessarily made that link. In fact, there were many other editors around the world who actively resisted that. But was it that clear to you that that was the way it was going? It was. And I remember we also went to Chicago and on the Chicago Tribune, they had a very primitive Apple Mac, and they said, "Look, we can do we can do advertising of people's houses. We can show people's houses." I said, "Go on now, show show me what you mean." And they had a very primitive video inside a house, and I remember it almost loading line by line. So, having told me that they could do this, it took about ten minutes before this this um, jerky video. But I just looked at it. And I thought that <laughs> that is it. I didn't need any more convincing. I just thought the printed page is going to find it very difficult to compete. But you're right, lots of people. I mean, we we went to New York, and New York Times at that point had decided that news was not going to work on the internet. They were just doing listings, and uh, it was like a sort of guide to life in New York. They thought you know, it's ridiculous to think that news would ever work. So there were these sort of chasmic moments where suddenly the ground open on the audience, you thought, oh, my God, this has happened. Well, that, I mean, when, after we had done Web.1, which was essentially to put the newspaper onto the web, but n- not just that. So I think we went beyond others in thinking this is not simply taking a newspaper and bunging it up as a method of distribution. We can do different things. We can, we can go into more depths. We, we, can, we can be infinite in the depths of you know, covering whatever subject we want to do. And then we had to get used to the idea that people could answer back. You know, this was a two-way process. But but around about 2006, we thought, well, we've cracked that, and we're pretty good at that now. And then somebody walked into my office and said, there's this thing called World, World Wide Web 2, social, what's now become known as social media. And that was the ability of everyone to talk to each other. They didn't need us any longer to go via us. And I said, is that big? And they said, yes, this is, this is going to be bigger than the first web. And I thought, oh, my God, we've got to start all over again. And then 2007, somebody came into my room with an, with an iPhone. Do you remember it was launched on the iPhone? And a tiny little it seemed ridiculous. You thought, well, that's a lovely gadget, but no one is ever going to read a newspaper on an iPhone. That would be ridiculous. And that was hideously wrong. And then the same year they started Facebook. And I told everybody in the office they had to be on Facebook so we could sort of experience it. And it was just people talking about what they had for breakfast or how the bus was late this morning. And again, it seemed to have nothing to do with news. And then, oh my God, another cosmic moment. (laughs) So uh, it was just a series of tidal waves. You felt engulfed by everyone. And you either gave up or you fought it, and some people did find it. Or you thought, shit, this is exciting. We can, 
you know, we, we are the generation that's going to reinvent journalism. And I, I tended to be in that camp. else did you look to for mentorship or other leaders or sort of camaraderie at that time? Who were the leaders that influenced you? There was, there was some, a few journalists and a few academics who were to the side of journalism. I think that really mattered. So there was a, a brilliant academic in um, New York, Clay Shirky, who, who was writing amazing pieces about the nature of the audience and he had this wonderful metaphor that we were going to have to rebuild the plane in midair as we were flying it. There was a man called Dan Gilmore who came up with the idea that my audience knows more than I do. Very radical concept for, for a journalist. And a lot of journalists <laughs> to this day would resist that concept. Jeff Jarvis in New York, teaching at um, CUNY, Fascinating. He's just written a book about Gutenberg and the, 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 the parallels between the revolution in communication in what it was, 1450, and, and, the, and the revolution now, and very quickly got that everything was going to be media. Yeah, I didn't understand what he said. He picked up a store catalog. He said, everything is media now, and every, every, every company is going to become a media company. Well, of course, that's true. Every, every organization is a media company now. And then... Um, Jay Rosen, another New York professor, was very radical in in critiquing newspapers and how they weren't rising to the challenge of this new medium. Are you still on Facebook's oversight board? I am. And what prompted you to join? Well, because I'm a utopian, you know, I was always the one who thought, it's true, our readers know more than we do. The, this, the, the advent of social media is a pain in the ass for the journalists because it, it, it has the potential to uh, undermine, if not destroy, our business. Nevertheless, as a citizen, it's kind of miraculous. It's kind of miraculous that everybody on the planet, in theory, has the ability to be a, a publisher. And the narrative suddenly turned and, and nobody was willing to say anything good about about social media, and of course, if you're the if you're a journalist and you've got the megaphone, you're going to pour the brown stuff all over it all the time. And I thought it was important to try and to help the engineers, you know, because Zuckerberg's got brilliant engineers, but they don't think about free speech or uh, or the nuances behind what kind of speech deserves to be protected. So I thought there is a way of collaborating with uh, you know other journalists philosophers lawyers political scientists human rights activists to try and create a framework of speech for the internet that's a, a really important thing to to do we have elon musk now ruining twitter or x as it's now known and we have the rise of chinese owned platforms like tiktok what are the challenges for facebook now do you think it's it's mainly a question of scale if Facebook publishes to whatever it is, three billion people, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an unimaginably large audience. So the, the scale of content that is flowing across Facebook, Instagram, Messenger is vast, unimaginable. And how on earth can you devise the systems to weed out the misinformation, the hate speech, the 
whatever bad things people are doing in order to keep these platforms safe and civilized spaces. And I don't think anyone is claiming that any of these platforms is that yet. And probably technologically we're not capable of doing it at that speed yet. But I do think Facebook's creation of the oversight board showed a, a serious willingness and a bit of humility, actually, to, to, to say, look, we can't do this on our own. We, we need some help. Although I was reading through the judgments for many of the oversight board's decisions, and it seemed to me that you overturn more of Meta's decisions than you do uphold their decisions, like by a ratio of about five to one. So that to me indicates they're still not really properly committed to operating a little bit more like a a publisher or having those terms of engagement. Are they taking the sorts of responsibilities that they should be much like a publisher did 200 years ago? Well, all that's in flux and it's changing even as we speak with, um, you know, we just had a a bill passed in the UK literally days ago. There's a a European legislation. The Americans are wondering about whether this fabled Section 230, um, which really defined Facebook as a platform rather than a publisher. So it it exempted them from liability for for the material they were publishing. I don't think anyone thinks that can hold forever. And the European and British legislation is changing that rapidly and demanding some kind of appeal and oversight structure. So I um, I think the reality is that they are a form of publisher, but it's not like publishers have ever been in any time of history because no publishers ever published hundreds of millions of pieces of content a day. So I think if you were, I think the people who really don't like social media and don't believe in it and don't want it to exist would like Facebook to have absolute liability for everything. So imagine what that would mean. You, know, it, you couldn't be Facebook and do that because you would have to have hundreds of thousands of lawyers and, and contents and moderate, you know, the, the, the whole thing. So it's, I don't think it's useful to say you are a publisher and you must be liable for everything. So they're, they're moving to a position where they're saying, well, okay, you have to prove that you can act responsively and quickly when things are pointed out to you. And I think that sort of halfway house is probably where we're at at the moment. Media organisations did give over their audience to Facebook and Spotify to some degree and possibly then regretted it when they realised what that was about. It was all about going to where audiences are and being on those third-party platforms, but then media companies realised, well, the third-party platforms then own that audience and all the data associated with it and then Cambridge Analytica happens and we all realise what we give up every time we log on to one of these um, platforms, especially ones that track our every move. Did the media get it wrong, do you think, in moving so much of its audience to these third-party platforms? You know, if we get, it, should we be putting some of the genie back in the bottle, if not all? Uh, I, I think as whoever, is it Churn Lyre supposed to say to the French Revolution, it's too early to tell? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. It, it seemed pretty obvious to many in the early 2000s that if the audience was somewhere else, then you wanted to be where the audience was. And it was like King Canute to say, no, no, you must come to us. Now, some, some media organisations have succeeded. They're, they're mainly elite 
organizations, so organizations that cater to wealthy middle-class audiences. Financial Times has done brilliantly. The New York Times is held up as the example of... So they have succeeded in saying, well, if you want us, you come to us. And by the way, you're going to have to pay and you can't read our content. In the UK, that's true of 9%. 9% of the population pay for any news. So 90% don't. I remember talking about this with the editor of the New York Times, Dean Bacay, who said, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that it works. But, you know, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks in New Orleans. And sometimes I worry about the 97% of Americans who don't read the New York Times, because what are they getting? They're getting Fox News and they're getting talk radio. Um, you, you see the effect, you know, that, that affects the kind of populist politics that you get with a very educated elite, reading educated elite media walled off from the rest of the... So, you know, these are big societal questions as well as pragmatic questions of what people are prepared to pay for. So, you know, it's very easy to say in a British context where 9% of people have said they're willing to pay, you should all be putting up paywalls and coming off Facebook and, and ignoring Twitter. But, you know, the biggest growth companies are companies like TikTok, where the under-30s want that kind of immediacy and speed and visual excitement. And if you say, well, I'm sorry, but what we do is uh, in print on big, big pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that's how we want to serve you. You're probably not going to last very long. Speaking of Fox News, I cannot believe I've joined you in your office in the centre of London on the very day that Australia's most recognised and well-known media baron has decided to step down. What are your first thoughts on Rupert Murdoch finally retiring? I thought he wasn't Australian. Well, you know, <laughs> you still claim we claim him. him when we want to yeah. and we don't when we don't. But uh, um, you know, suffice well, to say, the pharmacy of his newspaper career was in Australia. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's um, he's an extraordinary character and, and it's difficult to imagine we will ever see anybody quite like him again. There are pluses. Uh, you know, I think he, he genuinely loves journalists and journalism. He's been a defender of journalism. He's been an innovator. He's had huge commercial successes. He's been um, a great defender of uh, journalists. So I, I don't think you can say it's a completely black and white picture. There have been enormous ethical failings, phone hacking in the UK, the complete disgraceful, appalling debacle with Fox News, knowingly punting out lies, which led to the insurrection in, on January the 6th in, in America. I think he coarsened the, the, the debate in Australia and, and uh, the UK, certainly, and uh, did a form of intrusive journalism that had never existed before. And the way he exercised power and monopoly to get his own ends, whether they be uh, political or, or business ends, uh, was really unattractive. And you put all those together, and especially the monopoly and the power and and the fear that he was enabled to engender in in all ranks of people that if people displeased him, they could end up and its boulders being destroyed. 
you know, why one would ever put that power into one person's hands again, I don't know. But it's, it's not a black and white story. And I think people will be writing biographies of him and his family for many years to come. What are your thoughts on Lachlan as the successor? I don't think anybody can step into his shoes. I don't, I don't see any evidence. I mean, I haven't, I haven't followed the story of Lachlan immensely closely, but I, you know, he, he was notionally in charge of Fox News at a time when these appalling ethical failures were happening. I mean, in any other company, <laughs> a chief executive who presided over a billion dollars worth of damages for knowingly, I mean, that was the point, knowingly, they knew that what they were broadcasting was, was lies. They'd be out. And yet, here's the heir assumptive, completely protected because his name is Murdoch. So, I, you know, I've, I've got more respect for James Murdoch, who has walked away from it and, and I think just felt he couldn't stomach it any longer. But, you know, that's not the way the, the, the company works. At the moment, all we know is Rupert Murdoch um, stepping down, resigning from his position. You know, he's in his 90s. I think we can probably assume that he will shuffle off this mortal coil at some point. Do you think that Elizabeth or James would then try to reinsert themselves into the company once Rupert's gone? Or is it really very much that Lachlan is the heir apparent and and that will be? Listen, you know, there were 32 episodes of Succession, which was, <laughs> which was a fairly... Um, <laughs> what will they write about now? Yeah, I mean, you watch Succession, you thought this is all completely plausible, you know, the, the kind of family dynamics that could play out. I should think it's not going to be succession, but it's going to be messy, and uh, I would predict that the the company will be broken up. You know, um, but um, you know, who knows? Do you think there should be any restriction on media ownership? You know, one of the the criticism that comes about, particularly in Australia, but the same could be said in the US and the UK, is that you know Murdoch has an overwhelming power in the country by the nature of how much media he can own? And do you think that should be dismantled? It, it's, it's easier to say it should be restricted than dismantled because dismantling is complicated. But the thing when we were doing the phone hacking for about two years on The Guardian, we were on our own. And I thought, this is a, this is a story. You know, this is a story of, a, of a, an enormous global company where the board knew of criminal activity that they had covered up at board level. If you'd written that about a bank or an oil company, can you imagine the, the ructions and the, the kind of blanket coverage that I would get? Because it was Murdoch, people were frightened. I could see it. Politicians didn't want to cross Murdoch. Other editors didn't want to cross Murdoch. Advertisers didn't want to. Um, legislators, regulators police, this ludicrous moment where the police announced an investigation in the morning, came back at the same afternoon and said, there's nothing to see here. Um, the, the press regulator came out with a feeble report, which initially blamed the Guardian rather than, the, the, and you know, thereby signing its own death warrant because it was abolished. And that was because Murdoch had such power and monopoly. I mean, it wasn't a monopoly, but it was such an overwhelming control of politics as well as media. 
Um, that I know to be true in Australia. And it's one of the reasons, actually, that The Guardian is in Australia. You know, at the point where Gina Reinhart looked as though she was going to be buying Fairfax, you would have had 80% of your press owned by two people, both very similar political outlook and both highly interventionist in the kind of journalism that they would have wanted to see. At that point, Malcolm Turnbull rang me and said, can you come? We need we need a bit of um, a variety in in Australia, and you know I hope the Guardian has provided that. And we we've actually had Graham Wood on my podcast Curveball before, who I understand was one of the lead investors of the time to get the Guardian up in Australia, and that he talks about. Well, that he, he, he was, and yes. and you know the other bit of the playbook is that they try to destroy the national broadcasters. So I know the pressure that ABC has come under. I know the pressure that the BBC, and a lot of that is Murdoch. You know, he just intellectually, politically, ideologically, he doesn't believe in what he would call a state broadcaster. Um, and he, he wants it snuffed out, or at the very least, highly diminished in, in what they can do, because he just sees it as competition. He can't see any any public good in having a, a broadcaster that operates to a different kind of tune than he does. So, you know, for all those reasons, I think lots of people won't mourn the fact that he's decided to spend more time with his garden or watercolours or whatever he does. Whichever wife he has this or week. Or whichever wife he has, yeah. <laughs> You're also an amateur musician or perhaps a semi-professional one, Alan. So why did you take on the rather extraordinary task of tackling, I think, one of Chopin's most difficult and extraordinary pieces of music? Well, I, I suppose it was a midlife crisis. Um, that, that point most mid- people buy a sports car, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> it was my version. Um, I think lots of people encounter a feeling um, of in, in midlife that, that there's more to life than simply working from nine to six or in my case nine till nine and I think lots of people the big regret of a lot of people's lives that they gave up a musical instrument music had been a very important thing to me when I was young I, I went on a on a piano course and, and saw a person who I knew was no better than me playing this extraordinary the first ballad of Chopin I thought, well, if he can play that, that must mean I can play it. And I set out to play it and I ended up writing a book because it took me about 18 months. But it was also a weaving of, you know, why is amateur music making? What's the value of amateur music making? Which was coincided with the debate that we were having in the office about what's the value of amateur journalism. And those two stories coincided also with, with WikiLeaks and and music, music was quite an important safety valve. If, if I could play the piano for 20 minutes a day, it kind of it was an it, it was an important distraction from everything else that was going on. And and was it your way of managing your mental health and your stress levels during that particularly difficult time? I mean, I just can't even imagine how you're dealing with. Edward Snowden is in a room in Hong Kong and I'm dealing with, you know, lawyers and politicians and spy agencies, but I'm just going to sit at the piano for 20 minutes. Uh, well, it was, it was. And, I mean, there was there was one bit in the book where we had a, an amazing correspondent in Libya 
who disappeared. And I realized there was about to, the war was about to break out in Libya. And I thought, there's nothing for it. I'm going to have to go to Libya to get him out. I was in touch with Gaddafi's son. So I jumped on a plane to, to Tripoli and, and sat in a ho- deserted hotel in, in Tripoli. And there was a piano there. So I, I, for three or four hours a day, I went down to this ghostly deserted hotel and, and, and just played the piano. There was a sense of, uh, of this was something that was so different from editing and just involved the motor skills of what was um, what you could persuade your fingers to do. It, it was very different from everything else going on in my life. What do you think it teaches you about resilience to tackle a, a, a piece like that that is so extraordinary and is beyond most amateurs to, to tackle it and is going to take you significant time to get on top of? Well, I, I became very interested in the, the mechanics of learning and how the brain works and, and, and how you memorise and, and how you sort of completely break down a piece into individual notes and you just work on that. So you, so, so you have to think about it intellectually and deconstruct the piece in order to work out what the problem is. I mean, for me, it was playing the piano. Some people want to get their golf handicap down or learn to sail or, or go to the gym Um I think it almost doesn't matter what you do, but I do think in these highly stress, stressful jobs, it's quite important to do, to wall off a bit of the day and just say, for this 20 minutes, this half an hour, I'm going to switch the phone off. You can't get in touch with me. And I'm going to do something that has got nothing to do with my job. I think that, that does build resilience. You now have taken on another editorship role at Prospect Magazine. You've come to that via the principal at Lady Margaret College in Oxford, but why come back to magazine editing again? Well, I've decided I like editing. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've, I, I like no journalists. No national security issues in this no, magazine. No, 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 we, 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 we don't break stories at Prospect. Um, I like journalists. I like their company. I like what we do is we sit around and we think what's interesting, what's going to be interesting in three months' time, what, what's important, and then who could we get to write about it? And when that comes off, you get uh, an incredibly clever person who can write like a dream on something that matters. And you can then bundle that up and say something important. You know, it's really satisfying. And it's quite nice to step off. You're sort of half off the news treadmill. So what I think of as the quintessential, the two pieces we published earlier this year, one was about immigration. And we got the former permanent secretary at the Home Office to write about it. And he began his first paragraph as, forget the small boats. You know, it's really, this is not the story. You know, Britain can easily take 20,000, 30,000 people a year. The story is about the, the, the huge mass scale of you know, the inability to process the hundreds. Mass migration. Yeah, there's a vast story there which you have to face up to and, and think about deeply. And then we did something. I asked Jonathan Powell, who'd been Blair's 
negotiator uh, during the Good Friday Agreement in, in Northern Ireland. And I said, how do you negotiate an end to Ukraine? And again, he began by saying, well, you know, what I write is not going to happen in the next six months or possibly the next year, but at some point there will be a negotiation. And when they sit down, this is what they're going to have to talk about. And those feel to me like really important pieces to run because no one else is talking about them. You know, a lot of the media just gets caught up for understandable reasons in, in, you know, what's happening this hour, this minute, this day. And just to be able to stand back and say, actually, there's a bigger story here is tremendously satisfying. Well, congratulations on such a stellar career. It's been such an enjoyable hour to spend it's with you. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Journalist Managing Editor Kelly Reardon from Deadset Studio interviewing the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, for this special edition of Journo. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued time, your attention and your support. And a humble brag, Journo has now won two New York Festival's Radio Awards for news and been declared an honorary at the International Webby Awards. And it doesn't stop there. It's won Radio Today's Best Indie News and Journalism podcast and been shortlisted for the Australian Podcast Awards Factual Category. Journo is a production of Dead Set Studios. This episode was produced by Rachel Fountain and Liam Reardon.